How did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, having fun, and learning a lot while we're doing all this. You could try to call in, but we got a busy show. Our number is 844-999-9249, or you can always email the show at letstalktorah at gmail.com. So many things happened this week. This was a week busy. Beginning of the week was the holidays. I ate lots of cheesecake and oh, such good food and gained so much weight. And now we got to put it off. But okay, that was the beginning of the week. That was the Shavuot holiday. We talked about Shavuot with my friend Noah last week. My school dinner was this week. So if the week wasn't busy enough with the holidays, we decided to make the week impossible having our school dinner. Now, this school dinner is a major fundraising event. Journals and and speakers and uh, tributes and a lot of work and a lot of people involved. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Uh, but it was really fantastic. The event was last night. Everything went fantastic. We were hoping to end at 9.10, 9.15. It was more like 9.40, but not bad. By the time you finish cleaning up, it's 11.30, you get home, it's 12 o'clock, you, you unwind. But it was really, yeah, everything went fantastic. The honorees were happy. The We got fancy. Instead of hard books, we used these tablets. That was fun. Um, I guess the only problem with using electronic tablets is you can keep fixing it. Like, it doesn't go to a printer. So you fix it and fix it. And this morning, we're still fixing the tablet. Like this morning. So we can put online the newest journal. Um, and I'm surprised no one called me with an ad, like after the dinner, could I get something in? But even before I came to the station, I got another phone call. Oh, we got to fix this. So hopefully we're, we're like sort of done so I can move along with everything else I have to do with life. But <clears throat> it was really a beautiful event. Now we're here. We are going to have an amazing guest after the first segment, his name is Rabbi R.C. Klein, Ruven Chaim Klein. He's the author of a book. Now, catch this name. God versus Gods. First God is capital, second one is small. So we're going to have a fantastic conversation. I, we may not relate, but I think we will relate by the time we're done with idol worship. Idol worship in the Bible, what exactly it was, what was really happening, what were the kings doing, what were the regular people doing. A very fascinating topic on someone who made himself an expert in a field where most people just uh, gloss over it when they study it. So it's really going to be fun. He's going to Skype with us around 3.20, so that will be fantastic. Again, lots of Torah topics. This week's Torah portion, the longest Torah portion uh, as a single Torah portion, 176 verses. That's a lot of words. What's interesting is the longest chapter in Psalms is also 176 verses. So something... With this number 176, also the longest tractate, by the way, is 176 folios or like double-sided pages. So that's uh, also it's just interesting how that number keeps showing up. 
Um, we got to talk about, again, a lot of things happen in the Torah portion. I think we're going to focus more on a lady called a Sota, which we'll explain, um, and a, could be a man, could be a lady called a Nazir, also something we'll explain. And uh, we'll see how our day goes on. We'll see how much time we got. So let's give it a, let's give it a shot. Let's see what we can start with. So I was actually discussing with my class today. Very, very interesting. So there's a lady. We will call her a Sota. It is not a name. It is a title. It is not a good title. So we're going to first back up with some of the rules and regulations. And But at the end of the story, we learn the value of peace, especially peace between husband and wife. First things first, we talked, uh, I don't know if we talked about it, but uh, whenever we talk Ten Commandments, everybody is familiar, one of the Ten Commandments is adultery. Now, what's interesting is when we think adultery, I think a lot of people do not understand it's, we're not discussing fair or not fair, but it's not two sides of the coin. What do I mean? I mean, as far as the Torah is concerned, a man can have a hundred wives. So... The, the, he can have as many wives as he wants. It's the wife can't have two husbands. One of the things people talk about, even though this is off topic and not what I wanted, um, the re, one of the reasons, I'm not going to say only reason, one of the reasons the Torah is very, the Torah cares very much about that a wife can't have two husbands is because we want to know who the child is. It's important to us. The purity, who is the child, who's the child's parents, is very, very important to us. As soon as a lady can sleep around, we don't know who the father is. And that's not a good thing. The Torah very much cares that we know the lineage of the child. Okay, fine. So adultery means if you have a married lady, so the married lady cannot sleep around. It's as simply put as that. She cannot live with another man. Whether the man is married or not married is irrelevant. And there's a death penalty for that. If there would be witnesses, there would be a death penalty for a lady who is married sleeping with another man. Very simple. That's Ten Commandments. Nothing to talk about. The Sot is a lady who we don't know. Why don't we know? Because she's hanging out with another guy going into private rooms, I can't tell what kinds of rooms, doesn't matter, could be hotel rooms, could be an office, could be anything, and the husband gets wind of it, and the husband warns his wife, do not be alone with that man. That's the warning. If we have witnesses that she was alone with that man, she now has a new classification. She's called a Sota. So what do we do with her? You can't kill her. You don't know if she did anything wrong. But at the same time, she can't be with her husband anymore either. So the Torah needs that we have to clarify, we have to really prove what happened. Did she sleep with this guy or not? But how are you going to prove it? So actually what happens is she goes up to the temple. And there's really a whole process. We would prefer she admit to what happened. If she doesn't want to admit... Um, we are going to take this week's Torah portion, the part that talks about this lady. We're going to write it with an ink that erases, and we're going to erase that ink into water. I'm going to put some dirt in the water. We're going to take a, uh, a pottery vessel, and she has to drink it. And one of two things will happen. If she slept with a guy, she's going to die. Simple, straightforward, she will drop dead. If she did not sleep with a guy, she'll become healthier, she'll have healthier children, um, some say if she never had children, she never will have children. That's the basics of what happens. In other words, there's a test. 
the Torah created a test. God has his name erased in the water. And now this will test the lady if she slept around, if she didn't sleep around. Very, very simple. Now, the, one of the questions really becomes is, you know, we're very, very particular, also part of the Ten Commandments, with how we deal with God's name. We do not erase God's name. If there's a problem in a Torah where a Torah scroll was written and God's name was written something not perfect, you can't erase it. It's a problem. It could ruin part of a Torah scroll. It could ruin part of a mezuzah or, or the tefillin. It can ruin stuff. And here God says, go ahead and erase my name. What gives? So the answer is that God cares so much about harmony peace, harmony between a husband and wife. And in this situation, there's obviously no peace and harmony. So God says, I am willing to allow my name to be erased, to create, to bring back harmony between a husband and wife. That's what I'm willing to do, God says. I'll let my name be erased, and that will create, if the woman is is honest, whatever her strange reason was to be alone with the guy after her husband warned her. I don't know, maybe it's a psychologist. I have no idea. Um, so God says, erase my name, and let's prove that she's innocent. So, so you see how much God cares about peace between husband and wife. Okay, here's something. I'm just going to throw this out there. I teach third graders. So one of my third graders, now they are very innocent children, um, all coming from religious backgrounds, obviously. Not fair to say obviously, but they're all coming from religious backgrounds. A boy raises his hand and says to me, says, Rebbe, that's what they call me. He says, uh, after I go through this whole story, and I pretty much explained it the way I did to you. I didn't use the word sleeping around. They said married because that's, uh, that's what they relate to. Fine, no problem. So a boy says to me, why can't two men get married? Now, this could throw people for a loop. Now, let's be, you have to know where I'm coming from. Torah clearly says two men cannot get married. We're not getting into politics here. We're not discussing politics. We're not discussing uh, the tendencies people are born with. It's not at all the conversation I wish to get involved in. But the fact of the matter is the Torah says two men can't get married. So boy asks very innocently, and it's a fair question. You're, you're in third grade, right? Why can't two men get married? Now, there's a lot of stuff he doesn't know, and... Even more stuff I can't explain to him. So how would you go ahead and tell that nice, wonderful third grade child, the Torah says they can't get married? We're talking about marriage? Why not? Like, what's the big deal? So you could say, well, you know, the Torah says, and we don't ask these questions, and who do you think you are, and why do you come up with such a question, and what's going on with you? You could do that, and that would not be helpful, because you basically ran away from a very fair question. Say, so here's what I told him. I heard this many, many years ago. It's a very interesting kind of answer. It's a good thought. I told him, I said, in nature, God created a world. God wants the world to continue. He wants children to be born. If children are born, then you have the next generation. You have the next generation. The world will continue to exist. If people don't have children, then you're going to have a problem with the world continuing to exist. And again, I'm not discussing on an individual basis. I'm talking about globally. For the world to continue to exist, you need people to get married and have children. I said, two men cannot have children. It does work. Now again, we're not getting with a third grader too heavily involved in why that's true, but uh, that much you could understand. I said, the nature of the world is God created a world. He wants the world to continue to exist. 
Therefore, for the world to exist, you need men to marry women. If men are going to marry men, then you're not going to have a world continuing. So I, I actually think he was pretty satisfied with that answer, because he said the same thing about two women. I mean, I, I'm starting to teach him about the birds and the bees. i got to be a little careful. That should be their parents' problem, not my problem. But in any case, that was the conversation that ensued in my class because of what was going on. Because uh, I was talking about this uh, Sota portion of the Torah. Okay. The next part of the Torah portion talks about what's called a nazir. A nazir could mean crown, could mean separated. It is a person who wants to become holier. And we've talked about it in the past, right? I think we have. If not, we'll talk about it now. God wants us to live. That we have talked about. I have to live in the world. I am not going out into a desert. I am not becoming a hermit. I have to live in the world. God wants me to be religious. He wants me to keep the Torah. He wants me to be kind. He wants me to deal with other people in the world we live in. To If I'm in the middle of the woods or the middle of a desert, so, okay, I'll be separate, but I'm not living in the world. But sometimes people would feel that they need to do something to maybe give themselves a boost, so they they separate themselves. So they declare that they are a Nazir, and generally a Nazir is a 30-day process. And this is what happens for 30 days. For 30 days, you're not drinking wine. So that's going to pretty much make sure you're not partying. You're not going out to the bar. You're not going out with the boys because you're going to want to drink. You're not going out to drink. So automatically you're separated. Second thing is you cannot become tummy, meaning you cannot come in contact with a dead body so or anybody that has. So now all of a sudden, again, you're separate from people. Look, we all go we go to funerals. We, we go to cemeteries sometimes. We, we're, we're dealing with people that have gone to cemeteries or they had to bury people. So again, you're getting separated from people. And interesting enough, so one is wine. One is I can't, I can't become what's again called Tame. And the third one, interesting enough, is they don't cut their hair. Perhaps same thing. You don't cut your hair. You look like you're a mess. Again, people may shy away from you. That is who a nuzzer is. That's that's the basic um, overview, I guess, of what kind of person a nuzzer is. Now, interesting. Um, there was a very famous nuzzer in history. You may have heard of him. His name was Samson, right? From the Samson and Delilah, Delilah. I had the famous Samson. He actually was a Nazir. He was actually a Nazir from when he was born. An angel came to his mother, then to his mother and father, and said, you're going to have a child. He's going to save the Jewish people. He's going to be a judge. And uh, But the rules of this person is that uh, he is going to be a Nazir. So that means he'll never drink wine. He'll have to be careful never to become Tameh, even though he's going to kill a lot of Philistines. So that's, if it is a problem, not a problem, it's an interesting debate. Won't cut his hair, which, again, those familiar with the story, that's part of the story. Um, he, his strength was from God. He was a, obviously a monstrously um, strong person. They're very just We'll talk about part of the story. What's interesting is the Philistines um, were in control of the Jewish people. So the Jewish people weren't deserving of a leader to, to get the Philistines out of Israel. But they were deserving to be protected. So this Samson's going to come along, and what happens is he's a one-man wrecking crew. So he's going to 
end up hanging out with the Philistines. They'll marry one lady, and they'll make a riddle, and the Philistines will force her to get the answer, and and uh, she gets the answer from Samson after she gives the answer. So they come back with the answer, and it was like a bet for clothes, right? Who Either you guys are going to give me 20 clothes, or I'll give you 20 clothes, whatever the number was. I don't remember. So he says, you guys cheated. So he goes outside of the wherever they were hanging out. He kills 20 Philistines. He says, okay, here's your clothes. So he's like, he's like a wild man. In other words, he's every time the Philistines will do something to get him angrier to the Jewish people, they'll tie foxes' tails together, put a fire in between, and send these foxes through their fields. The Philistines will go to the rabbis, hand over to Samson, and the rabbis will say, what do you want us to do with a guy? He's a crazy guy. Go take him. He's yours. We don't know what to do with him. And everyone's familiar. He'll he'll marry that Delilah, and 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 they're going to pressure her to find out what his weakness is. And eventually, says his weakness is his hair. Cut off my hair, and I'll be weak. And they go ahead and they they cut off his hair. Or she cuts off his hair, and um, and then they capture him and they put him between the two pillars. And it's like a stadium. So he's in this stadium, and there's tens of thousands of people, and he asks God for strength one more time, and he knocks over the pillars, and the stadium collapses, and and Tens of thousands are killed. He's also killed, by the way. He dies there. So that's this Samson, who was the most famous Nazir. Because you become a Nazir doesn't mean automatically you have superhuman strength. Um, But he did. And his job was to protect the Jewish people. And it's actually fascinating, at the end of that story, that for the next 20 years, the Philistines were afraid, I guess we'll say, of the ghost of Samson. They, they were all afraid of the Jewish people. They didn't start up with the Jewish people because last time they started up, you know, 22,000 people got themselves killed because um, this Samson act over the pillars. So that's two parts of a fascinating Torah portion. But my music is coming on. And when we come back after the break, we're going to be joined by Rabbi Chaim, uh, by Ruvain Chaim Klein. We're going to talk about God versus God's. Hold through the break, and we're going to be right back. I'll tell you what happened. G'day, Morty. I got the Szechuan sauce. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original blue Power Ranger. Nobody right. promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. But your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. It's all right here on NewRadioMedia.com. Can that itch be caused by stress? Now we already know that stress can increase your odds of everything from colds to cancer. And now there's new research to suggest that stress can also make you itch. You see, it seems clear that stress activity is the immune system of mice, making them itch, and the experts say the same is probably true for humans. The study from the University of Medicine in Berlin and McMaster University in Canada found that stress can exacerbate skin disease by increasing the number of immune cells in the skin. Now, these immune cells are believed responsible for initiating and perpetuating skin diseases that can make you itch. 
The report in the American Journal of Pathology indicates that doctors were able to prevent stress-induced increases in white blood cells in the skin by blocking the function of the proteins that attract these immune cells to the skin in the first place. Now, more work is certain to come in this area of research. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back. And now we're working on Skyping with uh, Rabbi Ruben Chaim Klein. So while they're Skyping him in, and okay, I see it's starting to come up my screen, so that means we're definitely getting closer. That's always a good thing. Um, interesting enough, um, one of the things discussed a lot in this Torah portion is, um, is about the Levites and the different jobs they had. They actually each, there were three families of Levites, and each family had a specific job, very important jobs. You weren't allowed to mix jobs. You had to do exactly what the job was, whether it was carrying parts. Oh, we'll get back to this later. I see my guest, Ruben Chaim. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you see me? I see you. I remember I warned you. I can see you. Everyone can see you, but you can't see me. Sorry, that's the way the system is set up. How are you today? Very good. Thank God. Okay. All the way so, from Israel, you got to love Skype. What? Yeah, thank you for the invitation. I'm so honored and privileged to be here. I am so happy. I enjoyed your book. We're going to talk about your book, God versus Gods. The first God you can see right behind you, Chaim, is a big G. If you see the small line behind, it's a little G. So before we get rolling, who is Ruvain Chaim Klein? Oh, very good question. So I grew up in the, in the Valley, if you're familiar with the community in Los Angeles, California, uh, Valley Village, California, North Hollywood, whatever you want to call it. I went to Yeshiva there, Emek Hebrew Academy for elementary school, went to Yeshiva Gedola of Los Angeles for high school and base medrash. Then I came to the Mir in Eretz Yisrael here in, Yush in Yerushalayim, and uh, I've been studying in the Mir more or less since then, since I was 19 years old, studying in the Mir. I spent a year in Lakewood, New Jersey, studying in base medrash Gavoa, and uh, that's basically Ruben Chaim Klein in a nutshell. Perfect. I spent most of the day studying Gemara, I work on some books, I do some editing, uh, you know, different projects. That's basically it. Beautiful. And today we're going to talk about your newest book, God vs. Gods. So your book, I mean, it's like part encyclopedia, part history, like an in-depth understanding of idol worship through the prophets. So the first question is, before we get involved in the book itself, why did you get involved in this project? Because it is a project. Well, it's like this. I'm, I was always interested in history and archaeology and things like that. You know, for fun, I read history books and archaeological studies, and these things are interest me. And then on the other hand, you know, I learn I learn Gemara, I learn Chazal, I learn you know Torah studies, and I was thinking of a way that how can we synthesize these two things and make something of something that's related to history and it's related to Judaism and put it together. So my first book was actually on the history of the Hebrew language. It's called Lashon HaKadosh, History of Holiness in Hebrew. So that was also using a lot of Jewish sources, a lot of secular sources, academic sources, and putting it together. When you look at history, and specifically in archaeology, one of the main things that you see in archaeology is that everything has to do with idolatry. The, the, most archaeological findings have to do with you know, inscriptions of mythologies, idols, different ritual items that people had. 
So every, almost everything that has to do with archaeology has to do with idolatry. So now you look at the Bible and see, like, what does the Bible say about idolatry? Wait, the, most of the Bible is actually rallying against idolatry. So you know, what's going on over here? A lot of the times when we study Tanakh, when we study the Bible, so we look at the parts of the Bible that have to do with idolatry as sort of, you know, the filler material. You just gloss over it, you ignore it. But the truth is that if you look really closely, and you don't even have to look so closely. If you just look at it simply, you'll see that there's something much more going on. And my book basically tries to fill in those blanks and doesn't ignore it like most people when you read the Bible. You just like ignore the, the, the it talks about Baal. I don't know what that is, whatever. Something called Baal that the prophets are rallying against. But the truth is that most of the Bible is is trying to tell us a lesson of, you know, don't worship idolatry. Don't worship multiple gods. There's only one God. And, you know, that's just lost on most people because we don't understand the historical context. Yeah, that's actually me. Every time it's you gloss over, they did this idol, they did that idol, um, and right. then they, they got and in trouble. The and, Let's get to the juicy part. Right, the armies came, they got invaded, and then the judge came and saved them, and the king came, right, over and over and over. And that's what we want to dive into. So just to, like, almost get yeah, start from the beginning, um, what is the history of idol worship? Like, what, what does that mean even? What happened? Like, God created the world, there's one man, he knows about God, and all of a sudden, a thousand year, years later, the whole world wants to idol worship. Like, what happened? So, I mean, what, there's different ways to, to look at it, but if we go with the most famous explanation, which is that of the Rambam, Maimonides, in the beginning of his history, in the beginning of his laws of, of idol worship, laws of Avodah Zarah, so he actually goes through the history of what happened to Avodah Zarah and how that developed from you know human humankind being monolithically monotheistic because when a, when God created Adam, so there was only one person and he only and he knew that there was only one God, so there was nothing to talk about. But as humanity developed and it became more populous, so people started coming up with all kinds of other ideas. So the way Maimonides puts it, Maimonides says that originally. Man knew about God, only one God, and there was only one God that was worshipped. But what happened was that people thought that the way that we should worship God is by giving honor to those elements of nature that God gave honor to. So they would say, for example, like, oh, God took the sun and the moon and he put them in these lofty positions up in the sky, so we should also worship the sun and the moon. You know, that, that's, that's sort of how it started off. In Maimonides' estimation, I, I, idolatry started off as a, as a simple mistake. They thought that this is what God wanted of them. And then it developed into more sophisticated and complex cults of exactly how to worship different forces and then different things that represented those forces so you can get to them closer. But that's in a nutshell what Maimonides says. Others want to say that the people who invented idolatry were, were doing it in a more wanton or in a more advertent way of you know of trying to bring mankind into a cult maybe trying to unite mankind for their own purposes like we see like a sort of political for political reasons they wanted to create a common god or a common enemy and things like that so that's how how other sources would would uh, view idolatry or the development of idolatry right so again let's keep it simple but according to either of these two um, ways of thinking was there anything to the idolatry, or was just a waste of everybody's time, and the world just ran, and who cared? So again, this is also a, it's a very complex question. If you look in the Bible, you can you can bring proofs to both to both the sides of the argument. In a nutshell, basically, Maimonides says that there's nothing to it, 
and it doesn't have any reality and it just you know maybe gave people a psychological uh, a psychological high that they felt that they could control the world but other than that there's nothing to it other sources want to say that idolatry represents sort of forces of evil that you can tap into forces of evil that's more like the kabbalistic way of looking at things so it's it's a little bit more complicated to say on on you know on one foot exactly how to look at it but there's sort of these two um, traditions in Jewish thought in how to look at uh, the efficacy of idolatry. So I think we're gonna we're gonna speed ahead in history because I was thinking about asking about the golden calf, but I'd rather scoot past that one because that's gonna be its own conversation one day. So the Jewish people, we get the Torah. We we just had it's a whole, a whole chapter on the golden calf. Yeah, you know, like. I know, I know. I read the book and I read the encyclopedia part. I know, but um, no, so I, I want to move us along. Um, we get the Torah, God reveals himself to us, we just had the short holiday, then we make uh, some very bad mistakes, and we end up wandering for 40 years in the desert. Um, Joshua brings us in to the land of Israel. We're supposed to wipe out everybody so we don't get involved in their idols. Um, but not too soon afterwards, as the parts you say we gloss over, um, it says the Jewish people keep getting involved in idols, and we keep getting punished. What were we doing? What was happening? Okay, so there's different there's different ways to look at it also, and you know it, it's it's a lot of these things are complex issues. But what happened was it seems that in the times of uh, after Joshua um, died, in what's called the Book of Shoftim, the Book of the Judges. So we find that there's sort of like a, a, a roller coaster where the Jews are doing well, and then you know they're they're doing well in political ways, and and in, they're conquering the land, and then they're going up, up, up. And then they sort of forget about God and start worshiping other things, whether it's in tandem with God or as separate gods or as medium or media or intermediaries to get to the one Hashem, the one God. You know, they, they forget about it. They start going down and then you know, they start they start having political losses and political defeats and subjugation to other kingdoms. And then you know, God will send another leader and another leader will bring them, again, political success. With along with religious renewal, religious revival, bring them back to the one God, and then they'll be okay. And then when the leader dies, you know the whole thing happens again. So you have sort of this cycle of, you know, loyalty to God versus you know disloyalty to God. What what exactly that disloyalty entails? A plain reading of the text of the Bible suggests that they were actually worshiping idolatry. Others want to say that it wasn't so simple, that they were actually literally worshiping idolatry. Some say that it means that the leaders weren't ruling from enough with enough power or with enough authority to put a stop to things that weren't going on. So the Bible sort of exaggerates different things that were happening over there to make a point of, you know, this is a really serious thing that was going on. So when they were doing this, whatever will identify as idol worship, um, so were they, when they're bowing down to that idol, were they keeping the Torah? Were they doing all the other stuff? Or they were completely like a new religion and then all of a sudden back to the old religion? They, they studied Torah, they didn't study Torah. What, what exactly was the, what, like give us a feeling of what it was like in those days. So it's, it's a good question. I'll, I'll, you know, a lot of people think that like if you're worshiping idolatry, you know, that's like the worst thing you can do. If you're worshiping idolatry, that means you're completely lost from Judaism. And you know you're probably not keeping kashrut, or you're not keeping Shabbat. You're just you're completely gone, and you don't keep the rest of the Torah. But there's a lot of other sources, and there's definitely support for this in the Talmud and in a lot of other commentators. 
that they want to say that no, even the people that were worshiping idolatry, they had a certain drive. There was what we would call a yetzahara, an evil inclination that pushed them towards committing the sin of idolatry. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they had forsaken the Torah altogether. But they were still following the other laws of the Torah, but they were doing this, you know, this one evil thing over there on the side. Oh, that's very interesting. Now, so did they feel that they were contradicting themselves? Like, uh, did they walk? They may have walked around dressed like me and you, and and argued who's more religious and how you're supposed to do this command and that command. Except I'm also doing idol worship. I mean, it sounds a little uh, confusing if you would be the kids. Yeah, definitely, definitely true. And you know, that's that, that's an interesting point. Yeah, well, what, what, I don't know if we, I, I'm not aware of any sources of like what they themselves, how they themselves looked at themselves. They probably, I mean, there's there's sources that suggest that like they thought that their idolatry was actually justified by the Torah in some perverse way. You know, like there's there's a story in Tanakh where um, there, there's a, a person named Yehoyada, and he gives them he gives them rebuke for worshiping idolatry, and then they stoned him in the temple. There was a Kohen named Yehoyada, they stoned him in the temple. And you know, if you look at the Torah, so the the punishment of stoning something that you give to people that worship idolatry and people that have committed the worst types of sins. So the idolaters looked at somebody who's loyal to God as committing the worst type of sin. You know, they gave him they gave him stoning. It's a very interesting point that you're making there. That I'm I'm not sure of any you know explicit sources that discuss how they looked at themselves. Did did they think that they were justified? Were they looking at the Torah as something separate. You know, the, there were definitely times in history where it seems like the Jews were actually confused. They weren't sure what was the legitimate, what 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 did the Torah really want from them? There were. No, no, it's it's fascinating. I know I'm getting. I'm usually very good firing my notes, but I'm like way off my notes now. But just one more, and then I'm gonna bring us back. That's what my notes are for. Yeah, the Torah talks about courts and witnesses, and the Talmud talks about it. So people are doing idol worship all over the place. So you would think, let some witnesses come and say, "Hey, if you do that, it's idol worship. We're gonna drink, bring you to the court, and have you killed." Was that happening? I don't know. Yeah, it's like. I'm not uh, sure. Something fast. I mean, I'll bring us back, but it's it's like a, you know, it's it's what to think about. Like what was yeah. happening? And that's your next book, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the next book is I hope is going to focus more on like the philosophy and the theology of the you know the struggle between monotheism and polytheism. That's you know, th- this book is more on the history, so that's going to be more like on the ideas behind behind uh, uh, idolatry and Judaism and stuff like that. Cool. I, it'll be your third book. <laughs> Third yeah. book. All right, so let's let's get back into the history. So, again, many people should be familiar. You have the ten tribes split off from the from the tribe of Judah, and uh, you had the king, and the king was nervous that if everyone would go up to the temple, and it's like funny because all the rules exist, right? You're going to go up to the temple, and the king of Judah can sit in on the temple mount, and the king of the ten tribes or the king of Israel can't sit on the temple mount. Now, what's going to happen is everyone's going to go back to the king of Judah. So he set up. What would seem to be idols, so right. people wouldn't go up. Were those really idols, or in the way we think of idols? So uh, an idol is basically you know, a physical representation of something. Now the question is: Is it a physical representation of the one God, which is happens to be illegal because you can't represent one God with a physical representation, with a physical idol or an icon, because we understand that God is incorporeal; He doesn't have a body. And therefore, you can't say that like uh, this image represents God or 
or reminds us of God because you know, God is just so transcendental in that way that like we can't we can't relate to him in, with with an icon or with something that's like like God. So the question is, were these idols that, let's say, as you mentioned, Jeroboam, the first king of the kingdom of Israel, those idols, the two golden calves that he erected, were they actually separate gods? He was worshiping a different deity? Or was he worshiping the one god, the Hash, what we call Hashem, through this idol as like a medium or an intermediary? So the different commentators discuss that. And what it seems is that Jeroboam was not as bad as, let's say, we call him in Hebrew Ahav or Ahab, who actually brought in, you know, he imported foreign gods from the Canaanites or who lived in uh, north of Israel, modern day Lebanon. He brought in foreign gods of Baal to the Jewish people. That was what Ahab did. But Jeroboam wasn't so bad. He was still worshiping the same one God, but he was doing it in an illegal, illegitimate, illicit way of doing so through idols. That's the that's what most of the commentators say. So there's sort of like a uh, a digression over there of, of or a devolution in, in terms of the Jews' loyalty to God. First, there's like worshiping God in an illegitimate way, and then they come down to, to, a, to a lower step, and then they worship, you know, not just God, they worship something else also, altogether. But when we study those uh, those uh, verses, those passages, that part of history, the Bible certainly makes it sound like these are like the worst of the worst people. Is that because it's going to lead to things that are even worse, or or maybe not? Like, why do we look at it as being so terrible? If it's you know, it's bad, but maybe it's not so bad. I mean, first of all, we have to understand that idolatry is inherently evil. It's inherently bad. That's what the, that's what the Torah is teaching us. That's what the Bible is teaching us. Idolatry is inherently evil. That's first of all. And it's not because I don't think it's because it leads to something worse. Now, it happens to be that idolatry was historically associated with, you know, pretty bad things, sexual immorality, you know, murder, things like that. So when the Bible is trying to say that, like, these people were pretty bad people, it's because you see that idolaters, they also, you know, they weren't so, they weren't so uh, particular to refrain from murder or from other sexual impropriety. Okay. So now I'm going to move us way ahead in history because my time is flying. And again, we're talking to Ruben Chaim Klein, author of, you see right behind them, God uh, God versus Gods. Yes. Oh, now I see three of them because they're right behind you. And we're going to talk about how to get that before, we, uh, um, before we're done. But uh, the Talmud says at the beginning of the Second Temple, the rabbis said, we can't deal with this uh, evil inclination for, for idol worship. And they prayed, and God said, no problem. And basically, he gave them the evil inclination, whatever that means. I hope you'll help us. The evil inclination for idol worship, and they got rid of it. So my question is, and it'll be, it'll be especially true with how you explained to us Maimonides earlier, um, what did they really get rid of? And, and did they really eradicate idol worship? Those are the two questions I got for you. Okay, so it's like this. I actually have a whole chapter on the. you probably know. The seventh chapter of my book discusses what is, the Talmud talks about this whole story about how they, the beginning of the second temple period, they got rid of what's called the Yetzirah for Avodah the evil inclination for idolatry. So the question is, like, what does that mean? What was going on? The Talmud has a whole story where the, the rabbis were praying in the temple, and then a, 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 a fire in the shape of a lion came out, and they captured it, and that represented this, this evil inclination. What, what, what's really sort of going on? So one way to look at it is that you know, God expects a certain degree of loyalty to him. 
though he created the world, he wants us to serve him, he doesn't want us to serve anything else. Now, the problem is that one of the reasons why God actually created the world is that he wants, to, I mean, the main reason why he wanted to create the world is because he wants to do good to people. Right? They say that the word God is related to the word good. I don't know if that's true on an etymological level, but it's certainly true on a thematic level that God is good. We said in the in Psalms, kitov Hashem. You should taste and you should see, or you should think and you should see that God is good. God is good. He's, he wants to do good to the world. Now, the classical way of doing good is to give somebody something. The problem is that if I want to give somebody a present that he doesn't deserve, so then he's going to feel embarrassed. In Kabbalistic sources, they call this the Nahama de Kisufa, the bread of embarrassment. It's when God just gives somebody something, a present, without him deserving it. So he's embarrassed. He's embarrassed because he received something that he doesn't really deserve. So the best type of good that God can do to a person is if, if a person do, does something and he deserves it, and then God gives him something good as retribution or as reward for him doing, for that person doing good, right? You following? Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So, so the idea is that when God wants to give us reward, he has to create an, another option in order to make it that you, you're, you have your free choice, your free will. You made a decision to do good, and therefore you deserve reward, and now God is going to give you something good. That's how it has to work. If a person is doing something not of his own volition, he's, he doesn't have a choice in the matter, he's doing it because he's forced to do it, or he feels like he's forced to do it, then you know, it, it, it's not considered like he's doing something good. He's just doing what he, what, what he, there's no other option. He has to do good. Now, in a nutshell, in terms of worshiping idolatry, so if you have one awesome creator of the world, and he has all the powers in the world. Of course, you're only going to worship one, the one creator of the world, right? And then we have there's all kinds of you know philosophical and cosmological different proofs for the existence of God. We're not getting into that, but the point is that people knew there was only one God, and you're only going to worship one God. Now, the problem is that in order, if you want to receive reward for worshiping God, so then there has to be a, another sort of viable option that you would think that well, I can do this or I can worship God. And then by by making the right decision, you can receive reward, right? So what God did was, in order to sort of make that balance, so you don't you're not compelled to worship the one God. God created what's called the Yetzirah for Avodah the evil inclination, right? As its name implies, it inclines a person towards evil. It pushes you in the direction of worshiping the wrong thing, of doing the wrong thing, and that sort of makes a now that there now you have an equal choice. You can worship this awesome one God who has power over everything, or you have this 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 push that's pushing you in the direction of worshiping multiple gods or worshiping other gods and other forces in the world and doing the wrong thing. And now, when a person is for, is is faced with these two choices, and he makes the right choice, so then he can receive the eternal reward from Hashem. And it's not going to be embarrassing. It's going to be the ultimate goodness because it's a goodness that he deserves. So in a nutshell, what the Yetzirah for Avodah is, it served a very good purpose. The purpose of the Yetzirah for Avodah was to make sort of create an equilibrium and make it as if worshiping God and worshiping Avodah is an equal choice. You can choose this or you can choose this. And then the expectation is you're going to make the right decision. But you could also make the wrong decision. If you didn't have any Yetzirah for Avodah pushing you in the direction of worshiping idolatry, so then you would be compelled to worship the one God, 
and it wouldn't even be a question. And then that wouldn't be considered using your free will. Well, so I, I know I'm interrupting you because my time is flying. So, okay, so they got rid of that evil inclination to make sure, so because they couldn't handle it, they didn't want the reward for it. So the balance right. now has to has to switch. So, um, in, in if you could do it fast, because I want to make sure I get one more question out of you, did it work? So what it basically did, the ramifications of getting rid of the the, the evil inclination for idolatry. The ramifications basically were that it toned down the entirety of creation. People used to be in, on a very spiritually aware level. People would you know, be very aware of, of spirituality and God and godliness and things like that. And that would dro- that drove them towards the worship of the spiritual, whether it was the one God or the illegitimate gods of the idolatry. Got it. So right. now I have to. Now, to I, okay, yeah. I, I know I'm interrupting you only because my time is flying. I barely have two that, minutes, but that, I yeah. must leave you with two yeah, things. I, so much fun. You know, I know, I know. Time. They don't let me stay for as many hours as I want. I keep trying. They're not letting me. So two <laughs> things. Number one, we need to know how can we get your book, and I can leave you with thirty seconds of anything you'd like to leave us with. So let's do both. First, how do I get the book God versus God, gods, and what would you like to leave us with? Okay, so you can get the book on in Jewish bookstores. Uh, at least they better be in the Jewish bookstores. You can get it on Amazon. You can email me. My email address is rckline at or.edu. That's R-C-K-L-E-I-N at, or in Israel they call it a strudel with an A yeah. thingy around it, O-H-R dot E-D-U. Or you can just search me online, Ruben Chaim Klein. It's easy to find me. Perfect. Now, uh, what would you like to leave us with after we talk so much today? So I just wanted to, 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 to make a one last appeal for the book, that this book is you know for people that, let's just leave it like that. It, it, basically, it's a resource for Bible study. It makes sophisticated Torah scholarship available in clear English. It's a defense of traditionalist pr- perspectives, approaches, and it brings things down to help us understand the stories of Tanakh in a more mature way, you know, not just like on a simple level, like kids are taught Bible stories. This brings us down to you know a sophisticated, complex way of looking at things with multiple opinions and different ways to look at it. And it definitely does because I, as we spoke, at least through the emails, um, I read through the whole book. Um, I like to say cover to cover, but the truth is the last part of the book is an encyclopedia of all the different kinds of idols that you run into when you study Bible. So I sort of glanced through different ones, learned tons of stuff. It opened my mind. I hope, I mean, I know I learned a lot today. Hopefully everybody learned a lot, but really, really to sink your teeth into it. Go ahead, go purchase the book, God versus Gods. You can get an Amazon, walk into your Jewish bookstore. Um, Ruben Chaim, I appreciate the time. Thank you for joining us. So Thank much to discuss. Me. Oh, yeah, we could do this again because I didn't get through all my questions, so I got a little gypped. So thank you again. Have a great Shabbos, and I hope we'll be in touch. You too. Thank you very much. Good Shabbos. Okay. So I know we learned some stuff. We certainly weren't able to finish all the things we wanted to talk about. It's such a long list of stuff. Um, I actually wanted to even talk about why people exaggerate so much, because um, this you find the Torah, and it's it's something good to keep in mind. Um, the Torah is like a magnifying glass. So when we deal with great people, 
Um, and people make mistakes. We're all human. But the Torah definitely magnifies. So one of the jobs is to understand how strong is this magnification. What is going on? The Torah still is obviously forbidding all kinds of idol worship. You have to know what idol worship is. You have to know what's allowed, what's not allowed. What you imagine is not so bad could be terrible. Um, the only way we'll know it's terrible is when the Torah points it out. But this was our history through the Bible, through everything else. And uh, here we go. My break is coming. Here comes my music. We're going to have one quick segment when we come back. So you're listening to Rabbi Tzuyan. Let's talk Torah. And we'll be right back. Hey, how are you? I'm Gerald Valley, and I want to invite you to listen, watch, share my new show, The Drop-In, on New Radio Media. It is going to cover skate, music, culture, actually all sports. I have some great guests lined up, and it's to inspire and motivate people to make the most of this life we have. Check out the inspiration, the stoke, and the life of The Drop-In with Gerald Valley. the latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market all by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. Surfing the internet can be good for your brain, especially if you're getting up there in years. UCLA scientists say that the internet searching helps to stimulate your brain function by triggering centers in your brain that control decision-making and complex reasoning. In a study to be published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry, the researchers say that using the internet to seek out new information might stimulate the brain enough to sustain brain health and your cognitive ability. Before the computer age, the one activity that was linked to an active mind was solving crossword puzzles. The fact that even simple tasks like searching the internet might enhance your brain circuitry suggests that our brains are really sensitive to mental exercise and actually continue to learn as we grow older. So using an internet search engine such as Google produces the same brain activities as reading, but it also increases activity in areas of your brain that control decision making and complex reasoning. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back. And if Kelsey is ready, we got our poster up. And it's so interesting. Like, I think I prepared for this show a couple weeks ago, and I, I had different ideas for the letter. This is the letter Vav. It's right behind me. It is the sixth letter of the Jewish alphabet. It's basically a straight line. It's like the first letter you teach children to write. It's a Vav. It has a V sound. It doesn't, there aren't too many words in the Jewish language that actually, that the root word starts with the letter Vav. Vav is, usually means and, it's a connecting letter um, in biblical grammar. It does all kinds of funny things. Um, but actually, the word that came to mind uh, was Vered. A Vered is either a flower or it's a rose. And which is really like a good, uh, it's a good word, especially we just finished the Shavuot holiday. Last week we talked about with uh, my friend Noah, we were talking about that there were 
flowers all over Mount Sinai. It's a time we, you know, all the ladies like flowers. There's flowers in the homes. They actually did about a dinner, a very beautiful thing last night, um, when all the, either the women teachers or the men's teachers' wives, they didn't give the men flowers, sorry, they actually gave them a rose on the way in, on the way out. So they bought a couple extra. So when I was leaving the hall last night, I don't know, quarter to 12, or 1130, I don't remember. It was late. So uh, the person who took care of the flowers, she says, oh, Rabbi Jacobson, would you like to take some roses home for your wife? Of course I would like to take roses home for my wife. I took, she gave me a whole bunch. I brought them home. Of course, I got home, and there's two vases, and both were filled with flowers. And I, I was wanting to stick it in one, or the other didn't fit. So finally, I took a cup. I stuck the flowers in a cup, put it in the sink, put water in it, and sure enough, this morning, my wife had taken care of the arrangements by the time I got home. So that's this word, vered. Vered means a rose. By the way, it was interesting, the the the, the sound, the V sound, reminded me of volunteers, because running a dinner like I did last night takes tremendous manpower. If you have to pay for all the manpower that is necessary to create a dinner, you're going to run out of money. Like, the point is not just to entertain people. The point is to raise funds. And when people volunteer their time, and it doesn't have to be a lot of stuff. I have my my whole sound system, for the most part, is set up by a volunteer. Now, he can't do it himself, so I get another person to help him run the wires and the cords and the taping and putting up the, the amps and getting the stuff from his house. And that's volunteer stuff. And the person who runs my choir, that's volunteer stuff. I can't afford, I mean, I could afford it, but then I'm not uh, raising any money for the organization. And the people do the centerpieces and setting up the tables and, and, and just the greeters that come in. You must have volunteers. So it's interesting. I was teaching a, a Mishnah today to my class, and the Mishnah is explaining a very famous, one of the most famous verses. You love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, the Hebrew is me'odecha. So we all know with all your heart, with your with both your good and evil inclination, and you serve God with your soul, and even if the, a person has to die to serve God, not the, again, we always say you want to live to serve God, but sometimes, uh, one of the rules, by the way, is uh, if somebody says, bow down to this idol or I'll kill you, you got to let yourself be killed. It's called one of the big three. That's idol worship and murder and, uh, and adultery. And then there's the third one called B'chom Decha. So the first translation is, or your money. But the second translation is really a fascinating translation, and I spent a lot of time with, the, with my class on it yesterday and a little bit of time today, and it's, it's your talents. You have to serve God with all your talents, and people have all kinds of talents. They're artists, or, or they can sing, or they can, or they can run stuff, or they can greet people, and they can smile, and they can be friendly. You know, an organization always needs volunteers. And we don't know everybody's talents. A person walks in and says, oh, I want to help. Well, uh, what are you good at? If you know your talents and you walk in and you say to me, I want to help your school, I'm very good at organizing. I'm very good at computers. I'm very good at making phone calls. I'm very good at helping people uh, run wires. Who cares what the help is? But if you, if you know your talents, you don't have to have my talents. I don't have to have your talents. The goal is you serve God with your talents. I'm going to serve God with my talents. And then the world becomes a, becomes a great place. I told my class today, I said, if we all have the same talents, well, then we can't help each other, can we? 
because we're all good at the same stuff. The whole idea in the world is we're not all good at the same stuff. As a matter of fact, we're all good at different stuff. And now I got to serve God with I do my stuff, you do your stuff, and, uh, and then we can help. The world becomes a beautiful place. And in my one minute, I think I told you the story, there were two brothers, um, they were hanging out, and one brother happened to have a very hard life with, with his children, with his family, with, with health issues. And the other brother says, says to this brother who's having a hard life, he says, you know, you're always smiling, you're always happy, you're always pleasant. Um, how is it? Like, you know, for me, you know, I make a good living, family's good, I'm healthy. So for me, it's easy to be happy, but how are you happy? So he said to him, fascinating, he said, let's say we're playing a game of cards, and, uh, and you got a great hand, and I got, and my hand's not such a good hand, it's not really a winning hand, it's just not the best uh, deck, that you, the best set of cards you'd like to be dealt. So what do I do? I throw down my cards in frustration and I quit, or do I play the hand I was dealt, which is really a great line. He says, I play the hand I was dealt. That's life. These are the cards God dealt me. So I can either be frustrated and say, forget about it, or I can say, this is the, the cards God dealt me. This is the life God dealt me. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to do the very best I could. And that's a fantastic lesson to leave us with because my day is over. But I got to thank everybody, my wonderful sponsor listeners. You know, I couldn't do it without you. A big team today. We got Ethan, Kelsey, Cole, Steven. Alana's back there. She was. I hope I've left some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah, New Radio Media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it. That's it.